Tough young leg. What's happening? You guys doing all right? Nice to see you. You smell good. You smell real nice. Real nice. Nice work. Now, I mean, we can, get, we can get in the weeds real quick with the baseball talk, couldn't we? But uh, let's not do it. Let's not let ourselves get sucked into that. I should have thought of that, but, uh, you know, what are you going to do? I, I have a quick question before I get really into what I want to talk about, and it's this. How many of you uh, today were uh, handed a tiny little plastic baby by somebody? Yeah. That happened to more people than me? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you guys have noticed, maybe I'm the only one who noticed this, but there seem to be tiny little plastic babies going around, and so I just wondered if anybody else got them, if you've seen some, uh, the key is when you get them, I think, maybe pass them on to other people. It's like, it's like paying the little plastic baby forward, you know what I'm saying? You just continue to spread the little plastic baby. There we go. Look at that. Thank you. I'll hold on to that. They're weird for sure, but thank you. All right, I'm happy about it. You want that one? Okay, ready? Here we go. I promise we're going to actually look at the Bible in just a second. Okay, so here's the deal. We're talking about truth be told, and uh, in our first two sessions yesterday, we, we talked about the truth of God, right? That God is our creator, that he is incomprehensible in scope, and therefore, because God created all things, and because he's fathomless, right, incomprehensible in, in the size and grandeur and glory of who he is, but he wants us to know him. So we have a God who is relational by nature that created us and wants to have a relationship with us. And yet he's trying to communicate incomprehensible things to finite beings. So what he does is he sends Jesus, right? Jesus comes to the earth to be a witness to the truth, he tells Pilate, right? Jesus comes to the earth to put God on display. John 1.18, we looked at it yesterday, says, nobody's ever seen God, but he, that's Christ, the word made flesh, has made him known. So we talked in our first session about the fact that the truth of God can be increasingly understood the more we look at Jesus. And then we talked about the scripture last night, the truth of scripture, and the idea that the Bible inspired, uh, authoritative, you know, God-breathed, inerrant, all these things, uh, that the Bible is given to us to point us to Jesus as well, that Jesus is the truth, and everything in the scripture points to the fact that while there was wholeness at the beginning, now we're living in a time of brokenness, but because of Christ, it is possible for us to find oneness again in Christ, wholeness again, and that will be permanently restored in eternity, right? The story that God is writing in human history, the truth of human history, is revealed in scripture as it points us to Jesus. But lots of different people have lots of different impressions of who Jesus is, and I think the... Um, the video we watched a second ago encapsulates this really well. I recognize that in a room like this, there are all kinds of different opinions of who Jesus is, different impressions. And some of that has to do with your experience. Some of it has to do with uh, Jesus followers you've known. Some of them are really cool and some of them not so cool. Maybe Jesus followers you've read about. The, the picture and the image of Jesus many times isn't based on what's actually talked about here in the scripture, but rather the way in which his followers have revealed him over time. I remember when I was a, um, when I was a senior in high school, my mom signed me up to be in her church play. It was like an Easter play, right? And she signed me up, but she didn't just sign me up to be in the Easter play. She signed me up to play 
Jesus in the Easter play, right? So I got to wear the white robe. I didn't have a beard in high school, you know, so I had to wear the white robe. They glued a beard on me, and I had to learn all these lines, like Bible verses, and there was like a choir and an orchestra. It was like this whole big, you know, like fiasco for Easter at my mom's church. And the big finale at the very end of the, of the Easter program was I, I had to wear like a harness under my robe, and then they hooked me up to a winch, and they, and they lifted me up in the sky, right? So the, ver- the grand finale of the Easter program, the, I'm standing in front of like a church of a bunch of people, and they hook me up, and then I go up, and there's like a, you see that little air conditioning vent, it's like a square. There's a hole in the ceiling that's about that size, and I just, I'm supposed to go kind of up through that. So at the, on Easter Sunday, we'd done the rehearsals. I did all my lines pretty well. Like people seem to be really into it. My mom's church is all there. It's a pretty, pretty big church. And uh, it's the conclusion, right? And the choir singing, oh, I don't know. I'm, I don't know why it sounds like Little Mermaid to me, but whatever. Oh, there's like a choir singing. And they hook me up, and I start to go up, up, up in the air, you guys. I'm dressed like Jesus, the beard, the blue sash, the whole thing. I got my hands out. I'm rising up in the sky, and I'm looking out the crowd, and I can see there's like people crying. Like there's people who are like so moved by this moment, Jesus going up, up to heaven, right? Now, what they didn't know is that the way it was supposed to work is I I go into that little hole in the ceiling, and there's not like a room up there. It's just like a crawl space. So what I was supposed to do is like get halfway up, like just to like my waist, and then I'm supposed to lock my arms on either side of the opening, and then just pull my legs up and in, right? Um, But what they didn't count on, we didn't realize until we did it on Easter Sunday, is... uh, I got no upper body strength. So here's the thing. I go up, up, oh, going up in the sky. I get halfway up into the ceiling. I lock my arms like I'm supposed to, and like that's it. Like I can't, I got nothing, right? So I don't know exactly what it looked like from the ground, but I start to like <laughs> kick my legs, right? I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get up in the, and I don't know. I mean, I have no idea how it looked from the ground, but I'm imagining people were like, at one moment, they're like, so beautiful. And, you know, and then they're like, oh, oh no, the Lord Jesus having trouble getting into heaven. His chubby legs cannot ascend to the right hand of the Father, you know, and so like I'm struggling. I, if they could hear me, I'm like grunting, oh, oh, trying to get up in the hole. And then there's like a stagehand up there, and he realizes I can't pull myself up, so he just grabs me under the arms and yanks me in. So I imagine a grant from the ground, it's like, oh, Jesus is struggling, and then like, just like the spaghetti in Lady and the Tramp, it just gets sucked up, and I'm gone, you know? And I, like, I kind of wonder, for people that don't know anything about Jesus, I wonder what they thought of him after that, you know? Like, how many people came to my mom's church on Easter Sunday and were like, well, I don't know, really know much about this Jesus, but I'm going to give him a shot, and they're like, yeah, I don't think I'm into him, right? Needs to do a little more lifting in the gym. I'm not really, he's got some problems. He can't even get to heaven, right? What's the problem? I'm not sure I represented Jesus very well that day. I did my best. It didn't turn out great. And while that's a funny story, embarrassing, but a funny story, the reality is that for many people, their impression of Jesus is based entirely on what they've seen in the lives of religious people. And many times the way in which religious people represent Jesus is pretty crummy. And I'm not just talking about in 2022. I'm saying if you look at the history of Christendom, man, there are some atrocities that have been done in the name of faith. Some horrible things that have been done in our country and around the world. And people justified some of the atrocious things they did by saying we're doing it because of Jesus. And so we live in a world now where people's picture of Jesus is real messed up. 
So what I want to do tonight, we're going to have to move really quick. I know in the first two sessions, we just sat in John 1. Tonight, I want to move all the way from John 2 to John 6. We're going to try and cover four chapters, of, well, like five chapters of the Bible really rapid. We're not going to be able to look at every verse. We're not going to look at every story. But I want to move quick, and here's why. What I want you to see in these opening chapters of John is that as Jesus begins his ministry, we're going to see uh, he does some miracles, he gives some speeches, he meets with some people. I want you, Hume Lake 2022, to look at Jesus and look at what he's really like and look at the way who he is contrasts with the culture around him at the time. Look at the way in which when Jesus shows up, he kind of turns things upside down in a variety of ways. I want you to think about who Jesus actually is and evaluate with me, not the truth of what Jesus' followers have done historically, but the truth of what Jesus does and what he is about. So let's just, we're going to move through really quick. John chapter 2, if you have your Bible, you can start there. The beginning of John chapter 2, Jesus does his first miracle, and you might be familiar with the story. He turns water into wine. He's at a wedding with his mom. The people who were getting married, they didn't plan very well. They didn't have enough wine, so Jesus' mom comes up to him, and she's like, hey, they don't have enough wine. Could be cool if you would help them out, and Jesus is like, that ain't what I'm here to do, right? And she's like, please, kind of, and he goes, Okay, so he turns these barrels of water into wine just out of kindness, right? In some ways, he does it because his mom asks him, if you can believe that. The first miracle of Jesus is prompted by Jesus' mommy, right? She goes, hey, will you do this thing? And there isn't any overarching religious purpose. There isn't any big message. He doesn't do an altar call at the end. He just provides wine for people who are trying to celebrate their wedding because Jesus is good, Right? Because he's gracious and kind, he goes to a celebration and he helps the people out. It doesn't even tell us in the story the people ever know he did it. As we continue into John chapter 2, we see a really famous story. And this is one I want us to actually read together. Look at John 2.13. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to, the, to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons the money changers were sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade, right? Maybe you've heard this story paraphrased, or maybe you've seen, you know, television adaptations of it or whatever. Jesus goes into the temple in Jerusalem during the Passover, and what he finds there are, are tradesmen who are selling the things that you need for the official sacrifices, right? But they're selling it inside the temple. They're selling these animals for sacrifice, and Jesus' heart breaks. It says he makes a whip. He turns over the tables. He chases the people out, have you ever felt frustrated by the ways that religious people sometimes use religion as a way to make money? Have you ever been frustrated by the ways that religious people sometimes use organized religion to advance their own power or their own agenda? Have you ever been frustrated about the ways in which people take something that should be about man's relationship with God and they turn it into sort of a capitalistic economic endeavor? Guess what? Jesus was frustrated about that too. So if you feel like when you look at organized religion and it just seems like a money-making thing, I want you to understand that when we look at the truth of who Jesus is, he also did not endorse that. He went into the temple and he turned those tables over. 
He chased those things out. Now, it's not wrong to sell pigeons, and it's not wrong to sell doves, and it's not wrong to do those things. It's not that what they were doing is wrong, but listen to what Jesus says in this passage. He says, don't make my father's house a house of trade. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. I love that Jesus says that because what he's emphasizing there is this place, this place of worship is not a place of exchange, right? What is buying and selling? You give money and you get something back. Our relationship with God, you guys, is not about exchange, The relationship with God that Jesus has come to paint a picture of, the truth of who God is, is not a picture of exchange. I want you to be clear. When we talk about a relationship with God, that is not something you can buy. It's not something you can work for. It's not something you can earn. It's not something you deserve. A relationship with God, redemption and restoration is something Jesus gives us. There's no trade. There's no exchange. There's no buying and selling. There's no opportunity to to sort of make a trade-off Jesus looks at them and says, take all of this exchange out of here. That's not what this house is about. This house is about the reception of gifts, right? God is going to give you some stuff, and that's what my house is about. So in John chapter 2, we see him turn the water into wine. We see him turn over the tables of the money changers, declare that his father's house should not be a a place of exchange. We move to John chapter 3, and check this out. Look at verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Pharisees, just for the record, in case you don't know, were very, very educated, very, very um, honored and respected religious leaders in the culture at the time, right? These are guys that had done their work to be respected as religious people in their culture. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This guy's a leader. And the man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you were a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I want you to understand what's happening here. Nicodemus is, he's like a big deal in this town, right? Nicodemus has worked hard. He's got the right resume. He's gone to the right schools. He gets all the right answers on the tests. He's the kind of guy in this culture that people would have named their kids after, right? He's somebody that others would look up at and go, look how amazing Nicodemus is, right? What an incredible religious man. He comes up next to Jesus in John chapter 3, and he goes, I want you to know that we, and by that he means himself and the other religious leaders, we've been watching you, and we see a lot of things there that we like. Yeah, we do. Like, we can tell that you must be from God, because nobody could do the things that you do unless he was from God. What's Nicodemus trying to do? He's trying to establish a peer relationship with Jesus. He's trying to say, hey, you know what? I'm a religious guy, I'm a holy guy, I'm kind of a big deal, people really like me, and I just want you to know, Jesus, you also seem like a holy guy, like a religious guy. We are the same, right? We both are kind of awesome. Look at what Jesus says to Nicodemus. This is a guy who's worked his whole life to be in the position he's in. Jesus says in verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus just said, hey, we like what we see in you. We can tell you're of God because you do godly things, and we're pretty good at recognizing godly things. And Jesus goes, huh, man, wrong. He goes, you can't even see the things of God unless you've been completely transformed from the inside out, born again. you got to start completely over, right? He looks at this guy who had all the chops, all the accolades, And Jesus says, that's not what does it in the kingdom of God. That's not what we're looking for. What we're looking for is someone who will humble himself and recognize that everything has to be started over from scratch. I think sometimes when people think about Jesus or they think about organized religion, they think that everything we're talking about in Christianity is about modification. 
Like if you follow Jesus, your life's going to go from good to great, or it's going to go from pretty good to really good or whatever. Like following Jesus is just a way to improve your life. Can I tell you that's not true? Christianity is not about life modification. It's not about improving your life. It's not about going from good to great. Christianity is about admitting that you're dead and lost in your sin. It's about finding life. So Jesus looks at a religious leader, a popular guy, and says, none of this works. we got to start from scratch. Nicodemus doesn't even know what to do. Look at what he says. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. He goes, it's not going to be about what you know. It's not going to be about your education or your accolades or your resume. It's going to be about God transforming you wholly and completely. Right? Have you ever felt frustrated by people who seemed pompous? You ever been frustrated by leaders who seem like they were know-it-alls? Maybe they're not even leaders. Maybe they're just like people you go to school with, and they get all puffed up, and they get all prideful, and they get all arrogant because they think they're better than everybody else. You ever been frustrated by the inequality that we see in our society? Guess what? Jesus wasn't having any of that. He said to a leader, one of the most popular people in his culture, he said, that doesn't impress me. We all got to start fresh. Go to John chapter 4. I love this. In John chapter 4. By the way, again, we're moving quick. So I'm not covering everything in these chapters. You can go back and look at them in more detail if you want. In John chapter 4, famously, Jesus goes as he's traveling and he sits down by a well in a Samaritan town. Now, you you need to know a little something about the Jews. and, And I hope this doesn't hurt your feelings or surprise you. But the Jews were racist, right? There's not another way to say that. The Jews were racist. They felt like the Jews were the best people and everybody else were half-breeds. They, they, there is no way to read the Bible without recognizing the Jewish people were racist. And so it was absolutely unheard of for the Jews to interact with the Samaritans because they considered the Samaritans to be half-breeds. Not only were Jewish rabbis racist, Jewish rabbis were sexist. They wouldn't have anything to do with women. In fact, they considered women to be like non-people right? And that wasn't just Jewish people. That was like an ancient Near Eastern custom, right? Women were relegated to like non-entity status most of the time. Jesus goes into this town and he sits by a well and there's a woman who comes to draw water. And she comes, it says, in the heat of the day, which means she's coming at a time that wouldn't be normal for the rest of the women in her town. That gives us a little bit of a signal that she's isolated, that she's alone. She doesn't come with the rest of, of her townspeople. She comes by herself, and that indicates something about her position. Jesus sits down here, and I want you to read this with me. In John chapter 4, verse 6, it says, As Jesus is traveling, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, right? Jesus is sitting at this well. He sees a Samaritan woman. He says, Hey, can I have a little bit of water? Because the well was deep, right? She says, look at this. Well, in verse 8, it says his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jewish men had no dealing with single women. And Jewish rabbis had no dealing with any of those people, right? She goes, this doesn't make any sense, dude. You're not supposed to talk to me. You're supposed to pretend like I'm not here. I should be unclean to you. Like, why are you asking me for a drink? 
I want you to see that Jesus doesn't care about the cultural norms. He doesn't care about the bigotry and the racism and the sexism because Jesus sees beyond some of those cultural biases and he sees the heart of people that are all made in the image of God, male and female, black and white, no matter what race, no matter what language, no matter what social status. Jesus isn't going to comply with the rules of the age. The woman is disrupted by it. She's like, I don't understand why you're talking to me. You're a Jewish man. You're not supposed to be talking to me. Jesus says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him or me, and he would have given you living water. He goes, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for living water, right? The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from himself, as did his sons and his livestock. I honestly think that this question is calculated by this woman to assess whether or not Jesus is bonkers, right? Here's a Jewish rabbi sitting on the edge of the well, and he's talking to her. He shouldn't be. All the things in their culture dictate he shouldn't have opened his mouth to her. He asked her for a drink. She goes, you're not supposed to talk to me. He goes, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for living water, and I would hook you up, right? I would hook you up with living water. And she goes, uh, this well is deep. Like, how would you get that living water, crazy guy, right? You get, are you greater than our father, Jacob? Are you, are you like, you know, are, and what she's doing is trying to assess his, like, sanity, Look at what Jesus says. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let me ask you this. You note here that Jesus has stopped talking about actual water, right? He's not here talking about physical water anymore. He's talking about spiritual life. He's talking about living water. He goes, you know, if you drink the water I get, it will be a well within you, right? Well, she's only thinking of the temporal, right? The woman said to him in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is a woman who's an outcast in her society. She's all alone. She's coming out so she doesn't have to deal with the, the abuses of other people. And she goes, if you've got water that'll make it so I don't have to come back to this well, I want it. I don't want to have to come out here every day in the middle of the heat. So can I please have it? Then Jesus does something interesting. He's offered her living water and then he says to her, look at this in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. It's a weird question. It's a weird question Jesus asks because she doesn't need to have her husband present in order to receive living water from Jesus. Like we don't become Christians or followers of Jesus in pairs or couples. We, we make a decision to follow Jesus individually. We become part of a community after that. But it is not initially necessary for her husband to be present in order for her to receive living water from Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves, why does he ask the question? He asks the question because he's giving her an opportunity to just be honest about who she is. But do you guys like being honest about who you are? I can tell you what, I'll tell you what, you might not know this, but every single stinking person in this room is scared of having their secrets found out. And your secrets might not even be that big of a deal on the grand scheme of things, but, but like we're all worried about people finding out stuff about us that we find embarrassing or things that we're ashamed of, mistakes we've made, regrets we have. There are things about ourselves that, that we find you know, unattractive or whatever, and we, just, we worry all the time about being able to maintain this image. Jesus says to her, go and call your husband because he's trying to get her to be honest about who she is. We all have secrets. I remember uh, one time 
my family was getting ready to leave for the day. It was early in the morning, and we've all kind of left our house, and we're waiting in the car, and my youngest son, Will, had not come out, and we were waiting for him to come, and waiting for him to come, and he just, he was behind everybody else, and we're running late, so we're kind of nervous about, like, what in the world's going on, and finally, Will, and he was just a little guy at the time. He was probably, he was probably preschool age, so it's like, you know, four or five, something like that. He finally comes out the front door, and he's got this black binder. We'd never seen this black binder before. He didn't need it for preschool. We weren't really sure what he was doing with it. But he's running late, and so now he's kind of in a hurry, and we're like, Will, let's go. We're running late. Like, get in the car. we got to get going. And he starts walking down the steps to, our, to the front of our house, and he trips. And when he trips, that binder flies out of his arms, and it kind of flings over end over end, and it lands on the sidewalk in front of our whole family. And when it opens up, what comes out is what at first looked like a magazine, and then as we look closer at it, we realize that it's the latest American Girl doll catalog. <laughs> and uh, he immediately, this is no joke, he immediately goes, oh no, my secret! And uh, we were like, get your doll catalog and let's go, right? That is my gift to you. Where's he at, Will? I love you. <laughs> Uh, my children, my children put up with a lot, right? They put up with a lot. But we all have a secret, right? I didn't care that he had an American Girl doll catalog. Didn't matter to me at all. To be honest with you, the American Girl doll catalog is a pretty good catalog. You know what I'm saying? Like that, that makes a lot of sense. But he felt like, at the time, as a four-year-old or whatever, he felt like that was a thing he had to keep covered up. He, was, he felt like that was a thing he had to keep hidden. And he was embarrassed when it, when it was exposed. All of us have those kinds of things. Jesus looks at this woman, not because he needs to meet her husband, because he wants her to just be honest about who she is and to know she's safe with him in the truth of who she is. He says, go and get your husband. And she says, in verse 17, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband, so what you've said is true. Here's Jesus again, revealing the truth. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said, she's trying to sidetrack him with a theological question. She goes, ah, she doesn't want to talk about her husbands or the husband she's got now. She doesn't want to talk about her own life. She's trying to misdirect. So she says, "Uh, what do you think? Should we worship here or there? People, there's all kinds of debates about where we should worship. Jesus comes back and he answers. I'll just paraphrase it. He comes back and he says, it doesn't matter whether you worship here or in Jerusalem. What matters is where your heart is located. The posture of your heart is what God cares about. God cares that you worship in spirit and in truth. He doesn't care about where your feet are planted. He cares about where your heart is planted. She then sort of sidetracks again in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Once again, she's trying to lean away from him, right? She goes, "Uh, yeah, you know, the Messiah is going to come. And when he comes, he'll tell us everything. And look at what Jesus says. I who speak to you am he. She goes, I'm going to wait for the Messiah to, to understand the truth. And he goes, guess what? Messiah's here, right? Messiah is the guy sitting on the edge of the well asking for a drink. Jesus reveals who he is. He speaks the truth of who he is. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I want you to see in John chapter 4 that Jesus cares about the outcast, that he gives them an opportunity, and I don't mean them, us. He gives us the opportunity to be real and true about who we are without rejection, without being scolded, without being shamed. He gives them the opportunity to be invited in. He offers her living water knowing full well who she is. That's the truth of Jesus' life. 
Let's keep going. We don't have very much time. John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man at the pool of Bethsaida. John chapter 5, verse 2, it says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. Sorry, I got the name wrong there. Which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Check this out. You want to know what Jesus is like as he's revealing the truth of who God is? Jesus is the kind of person who sees a guy who hasn't been able to walk for years and years and years and years, and he walks up and says, Would you like to walk? And the guy makes some excuses for why that's not possible. And Jesus says, take up your mat and go. And the man can walk. But let me show you a contrast in this chapter as well with maybe what you're familiar with. Here's a man who hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. He is healed. And look at the the end of verse 9, the beginning of verse 10. Now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Here are some religious people, some religious people who can see a man in front of them walking who has not been able to walk for 38 years. And instead of high-fiving this dude or hugging this dude or throwing a party and dancing around this dude because he couldn't walk and now he can, they go, we don't know if you know this, but you're breaking one of our church rules. Stupid. uh, There's not really another way to describe that. But I will tell you, that sort of stupid stuff is still happening today. People so worried about goofy rules that they miss the transformational work that Jesus is doing in their midst. I want you to see the difference between the kind of person who could look at a man who hasn't walked in 38 years and is now walking and then gets grumpy about it because it was a breach of his own rule and the heart of Jesus who sees a person who's hurting and fixes it, loves him, and heals him. John chapter 5, we see people who are more concerned about their rules than a hurting man. And as a result of this, there are people here who want to kill him. In, in John chapter 5, verse 18, it tells us clearly that after this whole ordeal, whole ordeal, there were Jews who wanted to kill him. It says in verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You will hear in your life, if you haven't already, people who say, Jesus never claimed to be God. It isn't true. Jesus claims to be God several times. He claims to be the Messiah. He points to the fact that he is God. And in fact, even if you don't think he said he was claiming to be God, the people in the time period in which he lived wanted to kill him because it was very clear to him that he was equating himself with God. So when you get a 20th century professor from somewhere who says, well, you know, Jesus never said he was God. Well, I beg to to differ. They wanted to kill him. Lan Fleecy in the video we watched earlier says, why did they want to kill him? It wasn't because he was kind. It wasn't because he healed the sick. It wasn't because he, he helped women who were ostracized in their society. It wasn't because he turned over the tables. It was because he claimed to be God. Jesus did that. And, and we have to reckon with what that means. We get to John chapter 6, and we're moving very rapidly, but John chapter 6 has a couple famous stories. One of them is where Jesus feeds the 5,000, right? You've probably heard of that or seen it in Veggie Tales or whatever. Uh, in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He's got this huge crowd of people, and he looks at his disciples and says, how are we going to feed these people? And they're like, oh, we don't know. And, and there's somebody who has bread and fish, and Jesus multiplies the bread and fish, and he feeds all the people, 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. And there's food left over. 
After that is the story where Jesus walks on the water. You can go back and read that later. I love that story. But what's interesting at the end of John chapter 6 is that there's a huge crowd of people who start following Jesus. But the reason they start following him is because they got a free lunch. I don't know if you've taken uh, senior economics yet or not, but in senior economics, they'll tell you there's no such thing as a free lunch. Jesus proves that's not true. Your economics teacher will not like it if you point that out. <laughs> Jesus gives these people a free lunch, and you know what? There's huge crowds of people that start to follow him. In John chapter 6, uh, you, get about, you get about halfway through. John chapter 6, verse 26, and Jesus looked at this huge crowd, and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He says, you're only here because you want something from me. You're here because you see me as a vehicle to get some fish. You want another sandwich. You got a sandwich yesterday. You think now I'm just going to be a conduit for free sandwiches every day. But what you're missing is the fact that I'm not just that. You don't need, really, you don't need bread and fish from me. This is what Jesus says in John 6. He says, you don't need the bread and fish I offer. What you need is me. I'm the bread, Jesus says, that comes down from heaven. God has sent me to feed you and sustain you. I am what you need for life. Another fish sandwich, that'll only satisfy you for a little while. But what you need is me. And the people kind of freak out, mostly because he's not going to feed them lunch. But they freak out because what he said is kind of disturbing. He says, you have to feast on my flesh, and you got to drink my blood, right? And it's disturbing, but what he's saying is you have to be hungry for Jesus, not hungry for the things Jesus gives you. I think it's easy sometimes for us to think about Jesus and think, well, Christians only follow Jesus for what they can get from him. They want to go to heaven or they want to have their prayers answered or they want their aunt to not be sick anymore or whatever. And so people come to Jesus because he's a way to get what they want. Jesus himself says, that's not me. I'm not a guy that's just going to give you a fish sandwich every time you need it. And in fact, the reason I don't do that is because you don't really need a fish sandwich. What you need is living water. What you need is the bread of heaven. What you need is Jesus, the truth to transform your life. Like he said to Nicodemus, you gotta be born again. What you don't need is another meal. You don't need another lecture. What you need is to be transformed by the power of God. And I'll tell you at the end of John chapter six, there are herds of people who abandon him. It says there are all kinds of people who walk away, including if you look at John six, verse 66, some of his disciples abandoned him that day. John six sixty six says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. When we look at the truth of Jesus' life, what we see is not the picture of a chubby guy trying to fight his way into a hole in the ceiling. What we see is a guy who comes with intention, with love, with a real purpose, to explain to people that the relationship with God is not about exchange, to explain to them that it's not about, it's not about power, it's not about prosperity, it's not about wealth, it's not about influence, it's not about uh, being able to look down on other people. He shows up in a town where he never should have gone if he'd been paying attention to cultural norms, and he meets with a woman he never should have talked to, and he loves her, and he cares for her, and he gives her the opportunity to be honest about who she is, and at the end of that story, she says, you've got to come and meet this guy who told me everything I ever did. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's, he's standing in contrast with the norms of the day. Everywhere he goes, people are being disrupted because they, they want to just live life like they've lived it. Nicodemus had gone to school and he'd been educated and he had a position of authority and he just kind of wanted that to be left alone, right? Jesus is disruptive to the norm and for many of us, as I finish tonight, 
You have to ask yourself a question, what are you going to do too? At the end of John 6, there were all kinds of people who abandoned Jesus because they just wanted to do things their own way. I remember when my wife and I were first married, we were in our little apartment, and one night we're watching TV, and my wife goes, uh, hey, do you want some ice cream? And I was like, look at me, I always want ice cream. You know, what are you talking about? And she goes, I'm going to go get us some. So she gets up, and she goes in the kitchen, she goes to get us some ice cream. And I'm like, this is the coolest thing. Like, I've never been married before. I'm like, I married the girl of my dreams. Like, we're living in our own place. Like, this is so fun. And sometimes when we're watching TV, she just gets up and goes and gets ice cream for us both. Like, this is the coolest thing ever. Right? I was really excited. And uh, she comes back into the, into the living room a minute later, and she's got two bowls. And she hands me my bowl and a spoon. And I look into the bowl. And you guys, I'm not kidding. There's the... T- teeny tiniest little scoop of ice cream in there, right? So it's like down in the, I don't even know how she made an ice cream scoop that small, maybe like with a melon baller or something. I'm not sure how she did it. It was a tiny little scoop of ice cream. And I actually laughed. I was like, that's hilarious. Like, I, like this is the cutest little scoop of ice cream. So cute, you know? And I was like, but honestly, like, where is, where is my ice cream? You know? And she's like, that is your ice cream. And I was like, nah. And she goes, that is the recommended serving of ice cream. And I was like, who ever paid attention to the recommended serving of ice cream? And she goes, Darren, she goes, I love you. We just got married. She goes, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. She goes, I'm, I'm not going to serve you something that would be bad for you. And I said, well, then I'll get my own ice cream. <laughs> now, look, here's the thing. <laughs> Whatever. It's like, here, here's my point. The reason that I didn't want to be served by my wife is because I wanted something that was bad for me. And I will tell you, I want you to see this parallel because it's vital. There are some of you who are going to make a choice tonight, tomorrow, this week, in your life. You're going to make a choice to walk away from Jesus. Even though he is loving and gracious, even though he is the way, the truth, and the life, even though he cares about the things you care about, even though he loves and serves and you can be honest and not be rejected, you're going to choose to walk away from him like the people at the end of John 6, not because he's bad, but because you want what's bad for you more than you want what's good for you. I chose to say to my wife, I'd rather serve myself because I don't want what's best for me. And there are all kinds of human beings throughout the pages of history, and including at Hume in 2022, who will make a conscious decision to abandon Jesus, to turn away from him, and to live their own life because they don't want what's best for them. They don't want the truth. Nicodemus could have turned away because he wanted to maintain his power. The people who sold the pigeons can reject Jesus because they want to keep selling their pigeons. The woman at the well could have walked away because she didn't want to have somebody tell her the truth of who she was. The people in the crowd walked away because all they wanted was a fish sandwich, and when he wouldn't give them a fish sandwich, they had no use for him anymore. You and I have to ask ourselves the question, what are you going to do about Jesus? Every person in the room has to ask themselves the question, what are you going to do about Jesus? When we look at the truth of who he is, the answer to that question for me was, I'm going to follow him the rest of my life. I'll go wherever he wants me to go. I'll do whatever he wants me to do. I don't care if I make a ton of money. I don't care if I'm famous. I don't care if I'm living in a truck. It doesn't matter to me. I just want to follow that guy because I like the way he treats poor people. I like the way he treats sick people. I like the way he treats people in the margins. I like the way he sees the world. I like the fact that he knows who I am and he loves me still. I like the fact that he has living water and I'll never be thirsty. I like everything about Jesus that I see, right? But it's not my way. It's not my way of doing things. It's about me turning down my way of doing things. 
and living my life his way. And there are many, 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 including some in this room who will choose not to follow Christ because they don't want what's best for them. They want to do their thing. I wanted more ice cream in my bowl. And so I'll serve myself. I am hoping that this week at Hume Lake, each and every one of you will take the time, either individually and probably individually and corporately with your friends and your cabins, to ask yourself the question, what are you going to do about the truth of who Jesus is? What are you going to do about who he actually is? Because when you look at him, it requires you to make a decision. Are you going to follow him or are you going to do your own thing? And fortunately, we serve a God who gives us the opportunity to make that choice. Would you pray with me tonight? God, I pray that you would, uh, I pray that you would give every person in this room a clear view of who you are. We have absolutely raced through these passages. I have not in any way done justice to these texts. I'm moving so quickly that there's, there's no chance that I was able to hit all the details here. My paraphrases are poor. But you are the God of the universe, and you can fill in the gaps, and you can redeem all of it. And so I pray that you would help each person in this room to get a clear view of you and to recognize that in seeing you, in seeing your heart, and in seeing your grace, and in seeing the gift of who you are, in seeing the things that make you frustrated and the things that bring you joy, in seeing your shalom, your ability to bring oneness and wholeness where there was only brokenness before. My heart and my hope is that each and every person in this room, having looked at the truth of who you are, will make the decision to follow you, even though it means laying down their own way of doing things. Because our own way of doing things is a false way. Help us to lean and to follow you, the truth. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.